Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. And you can be seated. I invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. I appreciate the opportunity to get away. We spent the week in Chattanooga, Tennessee with my son, and, and I sat about this time last Sunday morning at Sojourn Church and listened to somebody else preach. So it's good to be back and to get to, to open the Word of God with you today in this place, our church family. We've said it before as we've gone through Romans, the same, to live above with saints we love, oh, that's going to be glory, but to live below with these saints that we know, well, that's another story. Paul has worked his way through this incredible theological passage of Scripture, the first part of the book of Romans. In chapter 12, he's made a transition to go into the more practical uh, aspect of the Christian life as he applies the, the theological truths he's taught. In chapter 12, that practical advice talked about submitting ourselves to Christ, being yielded to Him, not conformed to the world. He talked about the interconnectedness of the body of Christ, and we saw how important that was. And then he spoke about genuine love, Christian love, humility in chapter 12. And then in chapter 13, he's still talking about our responsibilities to others, and he spoke of our responsibility to government. And now we look at this section in chapter 13, which just quite honestly could be two separate sermons, but we're going to put them together and talk about the believer's attitude, the, the believer's attitude toward others and the believer's attitude toward their relationship with, with Christ. So if you would look as I read aloud in Romans 13, beginning in verse 8. Do not owe any, anyone anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. And whatever other commandment are all summed up by this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Besides this, verse 11, knowing the time, it is already the hour for you to wake up from sleep. For now your salvation is nearer than we first believed. The night is nearly over. The daylight is near. So let us discard the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk with decency as in the daylight, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual impurity and promiscuity, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no plans to satisfy the fleshly desires. We're going to look at the believer's attitude toward others, toward the return of Christ, toward sin, and then ultimately toward our own spiritual growth. So number one, let's look at this first aspect of our attitude, the believer's attitude toward others, verses 8 through 10. Basically, Paul says here, pay up. In 8 through 10, he says, don't owe anyone anything except love to one another. Some have used this passage to preach that we're not to be in debt. That's not what Paul is talking about here. That, that's, a, that's a good practice. It's a good policy. Uh, nowhere in Scripture does, scripture, does the, the Lord ever say that debt is a good thing. But that's not what he's saying here. He's saying there is one debt that's going to be there. 
And that's the debt that you owe one another, the debt of love. So first of all, if you're taking notes in your outline, letter A, of all the debts we incur, the debt of love cannot be repaid to others. You don't owe anyone anything except, he says in verse 8, to love one another. This is a debt that's going to be constant. It's going to be ongoing. It's something we, as followers of Christ, as believers within the body, owe one another. We owe a debt of love to one another. And selfless love that, that the Scripture speaks of can only be produced by the Holy Spirit. So if you want to talk about this selfless love, we spent quite a bit of time on that genuine love when we're in chapter 12, but just want to go back to that. This selfless love is something that only the Holy Spirit of God can bring about, can produce in your life. Hold that place, but look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You know the chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians? It's called the love chapter. I just want to highlight part of this in verse 4. Listen to this description of selfless love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It is not boastful. It is not conceited. Does not act improperly. Is not selfish. Is not provoked. Does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Love never ends. What a description of selfless love. There's another passage in Galatians chapter 5 where Paul is speaking of the fruit of the Spirit. Listen to this as, as, as an explanation, as a, as a demonstration of that selfless love. In chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, self-control. There's that self uh, including that selflessness to be, to be controlled by the Spirit of God. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, we must follow the Spirit. This, this passage of Scripture, Paul seems to have that thematic thing that runs through all his letters, this importance of love produced by the Spirit of God. The third thing about our attitude toward others is the relational commandments can be summed up in this, love your neighbor as yourself. Back in chapter 13, he says it this way in verse 9, the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. Those relational commandments some have divided the Ten Commandments to, to those about our relationship with God. And then this last section here, our relationship with man, with mankind, with others. All of these, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't covet. And then he says, whatever other commandment are all summed up by this, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus was asked one time, what's the greatest commandment? Remember, remember what he said? First of all, love the Lord your God with all your heart, that relational with God and then love your neighbors, yourself, relationships with other people. It, it's all summed up right there. So you can go home and tell somebody who asks you uh, what you know theologically. You can say, I can summarize the Ten Commandments. I can summarize the relational commandments for sure. Love your neighbor as yourself. So I want to say this before we move on to, to the believer's attitude toward the second coming of Christ. This is so important. Our motivation to obey God is based on love not obligation. My motivation, my, my incentive to obey God is based on love, not on obligation. In verse 10, he says there, as he speaks of these commandments, he says the, the law summed up in this in verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. It is an expression 
of the Spirit of God living in you. It is your, it is your incentive, your motivation. It's based on love. I'm going to obey the Lord. I'm going to, and that's the, the commandments are about that. I'm going to obey him based on my love for him and based on his love for me. No one has ever had to come to me and say, Kevin, you need to love your wife. I love her because I love her. I do things for her because I love her. She, she's in Dallas right now. Uh, she left me again for another weekend. I love her, and, and, and I love her because I want to love her, not because I have to. Not because it's, a, it's something I'm, right, it's right, I'm supposed to do that. That's an obligation, but, but it's because I want to, not because I have to. Folks, that's the Christian life. It's not all about God pushing his thumb down on you, saying you better do this or else. Now, that is an element of the truth of the scripture, but that's not where my motivation comes. It's about love, selfless love. So if I were to summarize this first point, the believer's attitude toward others, it is to be selfless love. I love the story. I've shared it repeatedly about the, the fourth grade class that the teacher decided to do the balloon stomp game. You know, that game where every, every child ties a balloon to their ankle and then you swing it around and the object of the game is to stomp on everybody else's balloon and the, the last person to standing with their balloon still intact with air in it wins the game. So the first fourth grade class did the game, and of course they're stomping balloons like, like crazy, and one little girl finishes, and her balloon is still has air in it, and she wins. So the way you win the balloon stop game is by protecting your own balloon. If you win, everybody else loses. Then later in the day in this class, another class came in, and this group was folks that were developmentally disabled children. And, and the teacher explained the balloon stomp game to them. And when it got time to go, she said, go. And somehow they got in mind that the object of the game was to help one another stomp your own balloons. So one little girl gets down and she holds her balloon for this little boy and he stomps it. And then another one holds it and they're helping each other break everybody's balloons until every balloon in the room is stomped and then the whole, the whole place cheers. Everybody won. Who got that right? The ones where one wins and everybody loses or everybody wins. It's about everybody winning. The, the, the relationships that we have within the body of Christ, and we talked about that as we looked at the body last time in, in chapter 12. It's not about protecting my balloon so everybody else loses. It's about helping one another, ministering to one another, loving one another, selfless love. Now let's look at the believer's attitude toward the return of Christ. Why in the world, in the midst of all this, does he mention this? He kind of tells us clearly. First of all, he said, I need to pay up this debt of love. Now he's saying, wake up, look up. Look at verse 11. Besides this, besides the fact that you can summarize the Ten Commandments up and love your neighbor, besides this, knowing the time, it is already the hour for you to wake up from your sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The daylight is near. And then he goes on to, to give them a challenge. Believer's attitude toward the, the return of Christ, you might list it as the second coming if you want to write that down in your notes. Several things about this attitude. We need to understand, as Paul says here, that the time of his appearing is nearer now more than ever. He says it in verse 11 there, our salvation, the, the coming of Christ, and for them the second coming, for us the second coming, is nearer now than we first believed. 
nearer now than when we first believed. Listen to what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 about the return of Christ. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. We're looking in verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians 4. Concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, in the same way God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. For we say this to you by revelation from the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly have no advantage over those who have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep is the metaphor for dead. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, with the trumpet call of God. Of God, The dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, he says, encourage one another with these words. Paul said several times in his writings, in his letters, we need to be ready at any moment could be the second coming of Christ. And I happen to believe my conviction is, is in Scripture that speaks that the, the believers of the church will be caught up, that word rapture, to be with the Lord. It's nearer than we possibly could imagine. The time of his appearing is nearer now than ever. I, I, I was looking at my books this week, and I, I've had this book since 1997, so uh, it's a little dated, but it isn't. It, the book is called The End, 50 Remarkable Events Pointing to the End. It's by Ed Dobson. I'm not going to read all 50, but number one, these are political predictions. The return of the Jewish people to Israel, the, the founding of a nation, the ongoing hostility of Israel and its neighbors. Number 10 is the revival of the ancient Roman Empire. You have the Euro and the European community. A major shift toward globalism. Increased international instability, that wars and rumors of wars that Jesus spoke of. A move toward a cashless society. The advent of computer technology. And now what they talked about back in the 1990s is reality. Um, religious predictions. Number 24 in his list is the rebuilding of the temple. Do you know that preparations are being made right now to rebuild the temple? The Jews are waiting. They, they've already uh, prepared hundreds of utensils to use in the, the, the worship of the temple. The Number 25 on his list is reestablishment of the priesthood. There's a school in Israel where they're training up a priesthood because the Jews are so ready for the temple to be built again. The list goes on and on and on. Persecution of Christians. I was looking at the bottom of his list. He has cultural predictions. And listen to this list. People in love with themselves. This is all out of 2 Timothy 3. Materialism, narcissism, arrogance, abusive people, broken families and personal relationships, people living out of self-control. What a list. And I didn't read all 50. I don't want to depress us too much. But I do want to say this. The signs of the times are here. It could be at any moment. And Paul says, because of that, you need to have this expectancy. So here's the next thing I would say in verse 12. Paul alludes to it. Don't be lazy in fulfilling our Christian responsibility. Verse 12, the daylight is near. That, that the watchman's call is, the sun's coming up. Wake up, it's almost dawn. He's saying, don't be complacent. Don't be lazy. You need to, need to be sensitive to the fact that Christ is coming back and you need to let that motivate you, that you're going to stand before your Lord and give an account for how you've lived your life in the body as a believer. Joe Stoll, I think, he said it this way. He said about following Jesus, he said, when Jesus looks over his shoulder, I want him to see me. Isn't that good? When Jesus is, is walking and looks back to see who's following me, Stoll says, I want him to see me. I'm not to be lazy about my Christian responsibilities. 
Thirdly, the imminent return of Jesus Christ is another incentive to live a holy life. He says, the night is is near in verse 12, so let us discard the deeds of darkness. Another motivation to living a godly Christian life is that Jesus is coming again. We're not going to read it, but 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 speaks of that. Again, that some are going to sleep and be surprised. Fourthly, anticipate Jesus' return without neglecting your responsibilities. And I, I don't think I need to say this to this group, but over the years it's been very important because uh, I've, I've met people who are so heavenly minded they're of no earthly good. All they want to talk about is the second coming. All they want to talk about is prophecy. All they want to talk about is the end times. And that's all they focus on and they're missing the Christian life because they're missing us. They're missing relationships because all they can do is look ahead. So maybe you need to hear that. I don't know if you do. Most people don't. But it's important. We had a family in the church where, where, I was, where I got saved. This goes back a few years, okay? Back in the 70s. By the way, they had some dates in the 70s and the 80s. Everybody's got dates. But people were, were saying, here's the date when Jesus is going to come back. We had a family in our church that was going to buy a car. They said, we're going to buy a car and leave the payments with whoever's left behind. That's pretty ridiculous. I don't know that they did that or not, but that's what they said they were going to do. Don't, don't let the, the reality of the second coming of Christ keep you from living a godly, um, spirit-filled, fruitful life today. Number three, let's look at the believer's attitude towards sin. This is where he says, clean up. Clean up. Discard the deeds of darkness, verse 12. Put on the armor of light. Walk in decency as in the daylight, not carousing and in drunkenness, not in sexual impurity and promiscuity, not quarreling and jealousy. By the way, when I read that list, you usually think of some of those as worse than others. We have a tendency in our churches to say these are the bad sins and these are the good sins. You may not say it, but we do. They did that terrible one. I've only done this. They're sin. It's, it's deeds of darkness. You can look at Galatians chapter 5 for a a very extensive list of the darkness and where Paul compares darkness with light. But I want to say three things here. Paul is saying, put aside wrong and impure behavior. Discard the deeds of the darkness. Set them aside. Do away with them. Put them away. Secondly, live in decency. Verse 13, walk in decency. Number three. Quite simply, just avoid the darkness. Avoid the darkness. Walk in decency in the daylight. Don't embrace the deeds of darkness. And he lists them right there in verse 13. There's a website called The Experience Project where people share life experiences. Somebody made a comment about darkness and and a lady who her screen name is Beyond Repair. This is what she said about darkness. She said, I prefer darkness over light. The darkness allows me to hide who I am and what I truly feel. In the light of all things, I, I, in the light, all things have a chance to be revealed, but darkness makes it easier to hide. In the dark, you can't see what's coming next. The darkness is a place where you can lose yourself. Lost in the dark is a great place to be because where, there you're free from what you were and can be what you want. She says, darkness is bliss. Now, she just put into words what a bunch of our culture thinks. Let me just hide in the deeds of the darkness, and I won't have to deal with reality of the light. Paul says, you need to clean your life up, believer. You need to 
put away. You need to discard those deeds of darkness. That's my, to be my attitude towards sin. Some of us live like the two-year-old where, where a line is drawn and mom says, don't cross that line. And the two-year-old is like this, right? They're just as close as they can get to cross the line. Some of us live our Christian life that way. This is, this is light, that's darkness. I'm not in the darkness. I'm still in the light. Paul says, get away from it. Step aside. Pull back. An interesting thought as I was praying through this passage. Thought about darkness as weeds. And how we just need to get the weeds out of our life. And, and the best way to get rid of the weeds in a yard is to grow a healthy lawn. And that's kind of what Paul leads into in, in verse 14 there. The believer's attitude towards spiritual growth. This is what he says in verse 14. Basically, dress up and grow up. In verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just talk about that right now. First of all, put on the Lord Jesus. That, that, some translations say clothe yourself. That, that's done in... In theological terms, a couple of ways. The first way is in our conversion. It's what's called justification. When, I'm, when I receive Christ as my personal Savior, I put on Christ. I, I am now clothed in the righteousness of Christ. When, when the Father looks at me, he sees Christ's righteousness. That's part of what it means to put on Christ, to, to be a, a follower of Christ, to be a, a believer. Paul said in Galatians 3, as many have been baptized in Christ, have put on Christ like a, a garment. Christ becomes our clothing. We, we're in Christ and Christ is in us. But the second aspect of, of putting on Christ refers to our growth. That's sanctification. That's becoming more and more like Christ. He says in that phrase, make no plans to satisfy fleshly desires. I am to grow. I am to appropriate the reality of who I am in Christ. We talked about that in, in chapter 5, 6, 7 as Paul talked about our new, our new identity in Christ. Everett Harrison said, this, this putting on Christ amounts to appropriating, appropriation. He says it is delib- the deliberate, conscious acceptance of the lordship of the master so that all is under his control, motives, desires, and deeds. I like that. Let me ask you something, Christ follower, believer, Christian. When you put on Christ as Savior, did you know that you also put on Christ as Lord? Did you also recognize the fact that I'm not just going to miss hell and gain heaven, but I am going to gain a new master, a new Lord? That's part of what putting on Christ means. It's my salvation, my, my justification. I'm, I'm right with him, as Billy Graham said, just as if I'd never sinned. That's the best definition of justified I've ever heard. Just as if I'd never sinned. He looks at me and sees righteousness. But secondly, it's, it's growth and And what I'd like to say about that is putting on the Lord Jesus Christ is a continuous process. It's a once-for-all event with continuing continuing, uh, process to it. It's like my marriage when I married Kelly in, in, in 1981. I think that's right. When I married her in 1981, there was a once-for-all act. But every single day of my life, I live out the reality of that commitment. Does that make sense? I can't just say, oh, yeah, back in 1981, I got married. Haven't done much about it. Told her I loved her that day. 
If I changed my mind, I'd let her know. No. You don't stay married 35 years by doing that. Some of you have been married 50, 60 years. You know what it's all about. It's, yes, that day I made that commitment. Every day of my life, I live out the reality of that. I discover more and more what that means. (laughs) Kelly's not here, so I can talk about it, right? Some of you will defend her, I know. We were were with our son in Chattanooga, and our daughter was with us, so the four of us are riding in the car and doing some home improvement projects. And now that I have adult children around who are very bold as they are, Chris is 31 now, I think. Is that right? Cameron's 28. Anyway, they're, they're adults, and they're calling us on stuff. I say something to Kelly, and Carissa looks at me like, I can't believe you just talked to her that way. My son gives me the what for every once in a while. And I've discovered that even after all these years, we're still growing. We're still sharpening one another. Seems like the longer we're together, the more brittle, uh, harsh that sandpaper gets, right? And if that's not enough, you put your kids in the mix to remind you. That's that, yes, I'm, I'm married, but I'm living it out. Yes, I'm safe, but I'm living it out. By the way, God puts a whole bunch of heavenly sandpaper around you. It's called the body of Christ. And that individual that you may not get along with, that you may struggle with, they're the ones that God may want to use to shape you to get to this last point so that you can become more like Christ. We become more like Christ. That's my attitude toward my relationship with him. That's my attitude toward growth. Remember Romans 8 where he says that God's going to use all things to work for the good of those who love him, those who are called according to his purpose, that we might be conformed to the image of his son. William Henriksen said, having laid aside the garment of sin, now deck yourselves more and more with the robe of Christ's righteousness. I love that. When I was a kid, Daniel Boone was probably my favorite TV show. Fess Parker as Daniel Boone. Love that show. Couldn't wait to, for that to come on our black and white TV. And, I, and I, I decided that I wanted to be Daniel Boone, at least the Fess Parker version from TV. And I, I, I bought buckskin boots at some, some place we were traveling, a, 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 a shop, and I had buckskin boots. I had a buckskin jacket. I had a coonskin cap. I had a musket. I had a, a, a powder horn. I had a, a, a gun just like, just like Daniel Boone's. And I, I can remember in El Paso, Texas, walking through the neighborhood dressed like Daniel Boone. And I, I want you to know I was Daniel Boone. I, that's who I was. That became my persona. I guess it may have been a little weird. But it was so exciting when I dressed up like him. I felt like I was him. The Bible says you have been dressed in Christ. Because of that, you now have this incredible responsibility, incredible privilege to live out that life, to be Christ-like. How are you doing, church? Let's pray.